Let us pray. O Lord, we turn our eyes to you and to your word. Father, we pray that you would shine the light of your Holy Spirit upon our souls and our minds, that we would receive what you have for us today. Lord, we pray that you would comfort us and be near to us, and that we would know you. Father, please hear our prayers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. the simple hearts. I was helpless, so God saved me. I will walk in the presence of the Lord in the land of the living. The Lord has kept my soul from death. My eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk in the presence of the Lord in the land of the living. I will walk in the presence of the Lord in the land of
Today's New Testament reading lies at the heart of Mark's gospel. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation Of them, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, I ask for your spirit to come. The words I speak today that are true, give them power and light. If I say things that are off the mark, silence them and brush them away. Inspire us this day that we might seek to follow you. In Christ's name, amen. I don't think it was just me, but this past week was hard. As you all know, the week ended yesterday with the 20th anniversary of September 11th, a day that stirs up all kinds of emotions. I worked in New York City for a few years and moved away the week before the 9-11 attack. The tributes, op-eds, and documentaries this week were amazing. Many of them were great, but they were also difficult to watch and to read. The pictures are still difficult to see. It didn't help, I think, this week that it was only a few weeks ago that we marked the end of the 20-year war waged in response to that fateful day As we inch closer to marking two decades since 9-11, here in Richmond, we had some pretty big things happen too. We were all witnesses to the removal of a monument that was an enduring symbol of white supremacy and a fixture, a meaningful fixture in our community for over a century. And if that all wasn't enough, the past seven days also reminded us that we are knee-deep in a culture war over mask wearing and vaccinations. Instead of drawing us together, the pandemic, it seems, is tearing us apart. 
And in my opinion, in each case, suffering was and is prolonged because people were and are unwilling to have the difficult conversations, to admit their faults and failures, to turn the other cheek, and to truly empathize with the suffering of other people. We all struggle with these things, which is odd, because the Bible is pretty clear. We are called to be in community and family, not just with those who think like us and look like us, but with those who are different from us. There is, after all, neither Jew nor Greek or slave or free. We are all one in Christ Jesus, and yet we seem to revel in setting ourselves apart. Violence, in response to violence, also never really bears much fruit. Reconciliation is the way of Christ, and yet we often resist working for peace because it asks so much, too much, of us. And choosing fear over faith, that's a failed strategy. Decisions based out of fear never end well, but we all know from experience, once fear grabs a hold of us, it can be really hard to let it go. And the avoidance of admitting our mistakes as a people and a nation, individuals, only perpetuates their consequences, both the intended and the unintended. And yet we often avoid honest confession because of how it makes us feel. It's a hard truth, but so often, All of us resist all the ways forward that challenge us and stretch us, that ask something of us and lead us to discomfort. And yet, that is the path Christ calls us to tread. If anyone to become my followers, Jesus says, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Just as it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus spoke these words to the disciples and the crowd that had gathered, his teaching remains controversial and unappealing today. Because what Jesus offers in this teaching is a way forward that is marked by things we don't particularly like all that much a way marked by struggle and challenge and confusion and suffering and loss and even perhaps pain. It's a way forward that demands that we set aside what I want, what we want, to grab hold of what God wants, not only for me and for us, but also for others and, in fact, the whole world. Today's reading from Mark is one of the most difficult in scriptures, in my opinion. And it lies at the very center of Mark's gospel. And it's a passage that at its core explores the impact of Christ's identity. Jesus' identity throughout his life defines his life's direction. And he's not primarily the son of Mary and Joseph. He's not just a great teacher or healer. And he's not a prophet who has returned from old days. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of of the living God. And this is the primary identity that defines the direction of his life, of his ministry, and the same is true for each of us here today. We are not, first and foremost, our parent's child or our partner's spouse. We are not an American or a Presbyterian or a member of any political party. We are not our occupations or our persuasions. We are children of the living God, 
disciples of the very one God has sent to save the world. And this is the identity, the core identity, that defines our life's direction. We are disciples of Jesus, brothers and sisters in Christ, which means the path he walks, the way he takes, is the one we are to follow. And from what I can tell, his path is one that takes us into suffering, not away from it. It's a path that draws us into uncomfortable political realities, into fractious religious debates, and into the cultural conflicts that define our time. Jesus challenged Rome's occupation. He consorted with those that both the state and the religious authorities considered unjust and unclean, and he had no trouble talking about politics, money, or religion. For many of us, Jesus is the last person on earth we would want to invite to a family dinner. I think Peter gets this, which is why he rebukes Jesus for all his talk about suffering, rejection, and death. For Peter, and likely for us, the Messiah, to be the Messiah, to be the chosen one, to be the Christ means to be the winner, to rise above all the ambiguity, the struggle, and the pain, to come out as the victor on top. But as the text shows us today, Jesus wastes no time undermining this definition of Messiahship. The minute Peter claims rightly who Jesus is, Jesus defines what this identity means. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all of this quite openly. Jesus is the Messiah. He has come to save the world, which means engaging the world, no matter the cost. Recent research by the Barna Group has revealed that the church, in addition to many well-documented challenges it currently faces, the research is also brought to light that there's also an emerging self-awareness issue in the church, specifically in this country. The self-awareness gap is a gap between how non-Christians see the church and how people who attend the church on a regular basis see the church. Essentially, the gap is this. The younger you are and the more unchurched you are, the less favorably you see the church. And the older and more churched you are, the more favorably you see the church. As the data accumulates over the past several years, it's becoming quite clear what the unchurched people, the younger people, think about the church, and it's not great. While the fact that only 21% of non-Christians have a positive view of the local church, while that's alarming, what's even more disturbing is that millennials, the largest generation in our country today, Millennials believe the local church is detached, separate from the real-life issues people are facing day to day. Millennials typically, in every survey, see the church as judgmental, homophobic, and irrelevant, a place that's out of touch with the needs of their particular community. Instead of being inspired by the church's actions, they are often turned off by what they see, what they understand to be, hypocrisy. 
The cure for this problem, of course, is to embrace all the things we love about being church, to embrace our compassionate side, our loving side, our empathetic side, to be gracious and curious and engaged in the world, things you do here at Grace Covenant. The way out of this perception issue is to pick up our cross and step right into the messiness of life in the spirit of service, armed with nothing but the good news of a God who loves, redeems, and saves in Jesus. The path that Jesus tread, the path that he calls us to follow on, is not one that preserves our way of life. It's not one that buffers us from discomfort. It's not one that ensures that everyone in our life will be in agreement. The way of Jesus is one that pulls us into the struggles of the present day so we can bear witness to God's presence in them, making a way where a way forward seems impossible. Now, what would it look like for you as a particular church to, to do this? What would it look like for you to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow Jesus? I don't know, but it might look like being a part of the conversations about what's next on Monument Avenue so you can show your care and concern for this neighborhood. It might mean consciously inviting in, hiring, listening to people whose theology and perspectives aren't different than your own, so you can create a more diverse community of faith that reflects the world. It might mean putting more priority in discovering where Jesus is calling you to go and less emphasis on what you are supposed to believe. It might mean being more open about your support for LGBTQ folks. I, I don't know what it's going to look like for you. That's up to you to discover with your new pastor. But I do know that you need to be willing, eager even, to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And I'm not talking about physical suffering. I'm talking about the emotional and spiritual suffering that comes when we let go of long-held traditions and practices and even sometimes beliefs to ensure the next generation can hear and receive the good news of a God who so loves the world that he sent his only son. Father Gregory Boyle is the founder of Homeboy Industries, the largest gang recovery program in the world. As such, he gets invited to speak all over the country. A few years ago, he gave a talk at a gathering of a thousand Catholic confirmands as they got ready to join the church. Prior to his speaking, the organizer of the event gave Boyle a very long introduction touting Father Boyle's ministry and all the lives he had changed. During the introduction, Father Boyle sat by the tabernacle. And during the introduction, while he sat there, he started filling the time by texting, by texting some of the homies, as he called them, who lived back in LA. The men and women he served were always moving from crisis to crisis, and they needed constant engagement, constant encouragement, especially at the beginning of their path to recovery. Looking back, Boyle recalls two significant things about that talk. The first was a somewhat inappropriate joke he regretted telling at the very beginning. He also remembers the interaction with the organizer of the event. As he made his way off the stage, the woman who had organized the event confronted Father Boyle. I am very disappointed in you, she said. Oh, I'm so sorry. 
responded Father Boyle. I know that joke was poorly chosen. Oh, I'm not upset about the joke. I'm upset that you were texting in the front of the tabernacle, of all places in the church, where everyone, everyone could see you. We have to set an example for all these young people, all these confirmands, and there you were texting. Now, as is often the case, Father Boyle, like most of us, could not think of a perfect comeback until later that evening. What he said in response was, oh, okay, I'm sorry. Looking back, he wished he had said something like this. I'm sorry that I upset you, but I will not apologize for texting in front of the tabernacle because I was texting some of the men and the women in my program, children of God who need to be reminded that they are, in fact, God's tabernacle. It all begins, I think, by claiming our identity, our true identity, as God's children, as Christ's disciples, as those who are called to love the world first and the church second, with the same reckless abandon as the one who bids us to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him to Jerusalem. I want to end today with some words President George W. Bush spoke yesterday at a memorial for the passengers of United Airlines Flight 93. His words yesterday were beautiful, and I think they echo our call to discipleship, a call that I think involves the courage to step into the struggle, to step into the uncertainty, to step across political and social lines, to journey with other people to the life that is found on the other side of the cross. This is what he said when reflecting about the, the events of 9-11. On America's day of trial and grief, I saw millions of people instinctively grab for neighbors' hands and rally to the cause of one another. At a time when religious bigotry might have flowed freely, I saw Americans reject prejudice and embrace people of Muslim faith. At a time when nativism could have stirred hatred and violence against people perceived as outsiders, I saw Americans reaffirm their welcome of immigrants and refugees. At a time when some view the rising generation as individualistic and decadent, I saw young people embrace an ethic of service and rise to selfless action. May it be so. Amen.